Hey, everybody. Yes, it's been a while since I rapped at you, but uh, I've got the same excuse that I've had now all year. Work is at a fever pitch, which I'm grateful for. And yes, I am still putting every spare cent that comes in into Bitcoin. Don't do what I do. <clears throat> Again, I, I when I gave my formula for how much uh, of your net worth that I believe should be in Bitcoin... I, the, the, the listenership of this, uh, podcast dropped like a rock, um, because it, it sounds crazy. So, uh, if you want to go back to that episode, it's, I can't remember what it was, but it's essentially take your life expectancy minus your current age and subtract 10. And that is what I believe your allocation should be. So um, let's pretend that you are 30 years old. You believe that you're going to live to be 90. So that's 60 minus uh, 90 minus 30 equals 60. 60 minus 10 equals 50. So that I believe that you should have 50% of your asset allocation in Bitcoin. So that's what an idiot I am. And that's why so many fewer people are listening to this podcast, but I have conviction. Anyway, I am moving forward. I am still buying Bitcoin again with every spare cent that I have. And you know, we're, we're less than a year away from the halving. Okay. And so for those of you not into the whole Bitcoin thing, that means that in March or, or I think April of 2024, the Bitcoin block reward goes from 6.25 Bitcoins to 3.125 Bitcoins. That's why they call it the halving. Okay. And that's so every 10 minutes, um, the miner who, uh, solves that block, if you will, uh, Instead of getting six and uh, a quarter Bitcoins, it's now going to be three and an eighth. And that supply degradation is, I, again, if you go back and you look at the four-year cycles that we've had, the halving happens and then we have a parabolic rise like six to 18 months afterwards. And, um, you know, I could be wrong and I could be bankrupting myself, but uh, I'll know um, here in about uh, two and a half years, and we will just see. But so that's that's what has been happening in my world: work, Bitcoin, work, Bitcoin. Anyway, um, you know, and nowadays I'm becoming less and less interested in the whole investing for retirement angle. Um, you know, I've been obsessed with that and, you know, real estate investing and commodities and on and on and on. But now it's, it, I'm turning more to what the fuck is the world going to be like 15 years from now when I'm retired? Okay. Things are, are changing and going downhill and getting weird so fast. I mean, if you would have told me 10 years ago that San Francisco would be an apocalyptic zombie hellhole or that this whole uh, trans thing that men would be pretending to be women or, or I should say identifying as women and being allowed to compete against them in sports, uh, you know, or even more insane cons in prison dudes identifying as female then being allowed to move into female prisons then proceeding to rape uh other female uh inmates uh and in in some cases uh the guards i mean it's insane look it up it's fucking crazy or the uh, you know um 
the uh, what's the Supreme Court nominee, uh, Ketanji Brown Jackson. So when when or when she was a nominee and in during the hearings, someone asked her if uh, to tell them what a woman was, and she responded unironically seriously i'm not a biologist okay so you get my point this is like it is like you 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 can't speak in real biological terms now because there's so much weird activist horseshit trying to convince you that the you know gender is a choice so anyway I don't care about it. I and I'm not. I believe in trans rights and everything's fine there. It's just, it's just fucking weird, you know. And so, policy and uh, group mental illness and group think that comes with that have led us to this place where we're watching. Going back to San Francisco, what was once the most beautiful city in our country going down the toilet. And and now if you say something so controversial as men have penises and women have vaginas, you get canceled. So you get my drift. So given how fucked up things are becoming and the accelerated rate of our group mental illness, well, I'm, I'm regularly contemplating what is the world that I'm going to be retiring into going to be like? Um, so that's, that's kind of what's taking up my my little mental real estate rather than thinking about investing. Um, anyway, so uh, today's uh, topic, speaking of cities in decline, uh, last month I had my annual business trip to San Francisco and it was... It was interesting. I've been watching that town, and I, I lived in San Francisco in 1987. I've been traveling back there, as I've mentioned before, um, often for the last uh, 25 years. And uh, and now it's annual. Um, I just went down there, and it's, it's worse than it, – it, it's amazingly bad, that town. If you haven't been there uh, – if you haven't been there in the last, like, four or five years, it's crazy. The things that you've heard are true. Uh I used to stay at a hotel near Union Square, and it was just too shitty. So I stayed up uh, on uh, closer to Van Ness, on like Geary and Van Ness at a new hotel, and thinking that that getting away from Union Square would be better, but meh, it was not, uh, and, and it was shitty. But I noticed two things. I'm not going to harp too much on San Francisco right now, but two things that stood out to me. One is that I saw one drug deal going down where – you used to see the drug deals going down, but it would just be kind of point to point, man to man, uh, kind of covert drug deals. This one that I saw, it was at a bus stop, a city bus stop, the Muni there. And there was like 12 people in this bus stop and one dude who was clearly the, 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 the pusher, if you will. And, um, and it was like a full on group of people kind of wagging their money like they were in the pit at the New York Stock Exchange you, you know you know give me my give me my junk and it was and they say that it's Honduran uh uh, gangs that are the kind of the the main point to point dealers down there, and I don't know if that's true or not. But this group drug deal, I'd never seen such a thing. I've, I'm I'm not naive. I've seen a lot of drug deals. I've been a part of a lot of drug deals, but uh, in my youth. But uh, this was just amazing that it was such a big group of people out in the open and just uh, like, hey, n no big deal. All 12 of you are going to get your fentanyl. Just wait your turn. And um, the, oh, and one other thing that I noticed 
The, the people walking around, I saw at least a half dozen people who were walking like almost fully bent over, like walking at a 90 degree angle. Um, you've probably seen very old people who have like severe osteoporosis, but these were, you know, the people who were probably in their 30s, maybe 40s, walking hunched over, like like unable to walk upright. And I saw this and I, again, I, I go to San Francisco every year. I'd never seen this phenomenon before where it's like, I, and I don't, I don't, I don't know if you attribute it to, Hey, people who uh, smoke enough fentanyl over time develop this, this fully hunched over 90 degree uh, body posture. But that was highly strange and I did not like it. And it's very depressing. And, and again, Allowing humans to kill themselves by giving them the ability to buy as much lethal contraband as they possibly can until they die is not being is not providing empathy is not caring for people it's it's enabling people to kill themselves and that's why I fucking hate the whole, whole homeless industrial complex that continues to support this because you're not being you're you're not being gracious you're not you're not helping people you are just helping them kill themselves anyway that was my trip to san francisco it was a successful trip business wise but it was uh just a nightmare to see it go down fortunately the uh trade show that is kind of um one of the reasons why I go down there, they're uh, moving on. I, I think they're going to Austin just because San Francisco is so bad. And there has been kind of an exodus of big trade shows in San Francisco that has been happening. And this is uh, yet another big show that nor would bring in millions of dollars of, uh, you know, business travelers and whatnot to their economy. But they're like, Hey, San Francisco is too shitty. Let's bail. Let's go to Austin. So next year, I'll give you a report from Austin. And uh, now, uh, so speaking of cities in decline, <clears throat> excuse me, I've talked about homeless people. I've talked about um, the homelessness crisis. I've talked about Michael Schellenberger, my personal hero uh, in his book, San Francisco. And I have um, harped on this and um Harkening back to uh, a buddy of mine I was working with, I've told this story before, but in about 2000, I would say 13, we were walking around, we were doing some shooting downtown in Portland, and I was complaining about the homeless issue, and he's like, well, what can you do? And as you know, he kind of just threw up his arms. He's like, "Well, it's it's too late now. What are you going to do now?" And and the homelessness issue in Portland was way, 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 way less of a problem than it is today. And I said two things: incarcerate and rehabilitate. I firmly believe that that's the only way to show mercy to these humans that are again out there getting unfettered access to fentanyl now and killing themselves. I, I firmly believe that that's the only answer. And uh, of course, I came off like an asshole for saying that, but um, it, it is what it is. And now, now Portland is kind of in ruins on the brink of looking like a San Francisco. So I wanted today to share with you 
an article that was in the it was in the uh, Wall Street Journal on uh, Sunday. Oh yeah, it was July twenty second. So this is a few weeks ago. Um, but I uh, kept that issue because. I wanted to share this with you because I think it's a very interesting take on what is a big part of the homelessness problem, and that is the mental health crisis. So um, I would like to read this to you. I know this is probably a copyright violation, uh, but it is what it is. So this is, um, for the next few minutes, I'm going to read you this Wall Street Journal article. And this article is called, or is titled, It's Time to Bring Back Asylums. Recent cases of violence by the mentally ill highlight the need to reconsider a long-maligned institution that now offers a promising solution. Here we go. This is by a guy named David Oshinsky. The ongoing saga of the severely mentally ill in America is stirring attention again in a sadly familiar way. In Los Angeles in early 2022, a 70-year-old nurse was murdered while waiting for a bus. And two days later, a young graduate student was stabbed to death in an upscale furniture store where she worked. That same week in New York City, a 40-year-old financial analyst was pushed onto the subway tracks as a train was arriving, killing her instantly. All three assaults, excuse me, all three assaults, random and unprovoked, were committed by unsheltered homeless men with violent pasts and long histories of mental illness. In New York, the perpetrator had warned a psychiatrist during one of his many hospitalizations of his intentions to commit that very crime. Then came the chance encounter this May that led to the death of Jordan Neely on a Manhattan-bound subway car. Homeless and schizophrenic, Neely had spent most of his adult life in and out of emergency rooms, psychiatric wards, and prison. He had 42 prior arrests, mostly for nuisance crimes, but also for assaults. He'd recently pleaded guilty to punching an elderly woman in the face, fracturing her eye socket. What happened in the moments leading up to his death is still in dispute. While a jury will decide whether another passenger's chokehold on Neely was second-degree manslaughter or an act of self-defense, the attention the incident received speaks volumes about the public's fear of the aggressive and sometimes violent behavior of the mentally ill. Most of all, Neely's death highlights the failures of a mental health system that allows profoundly disturbed people to slip through the cracks. On an average night, according to the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, close to 600,000 people in the country will be homeless, a figure seen by many as an undercount. More than 40% will be unsheltered or, quote, living in places not suitable for human habitation, and about 20% will be dealing with severe mental health, sorry, severe mental illness. Experts sharply disagree on the contribution of homelessness to rising crime rates. Some emphasize that most of these crimes are low-level victimless offenses, such as loitering or public urination, but others note the disproportionately high level of all crimes, including assaults and homicides, committed by those battling homelessness and mental issues simultaneously. You may, uh, take quick aside here, you may remember from a previous episode where I shared with you that 50% of all arrests made in Portland, Oregon in 2019 were homeless people, 50%. So maybe a two or 3% uh, portion of our 
population was responsible for 50% of the crimes that led to arrests. Anyway, just so you know, back to the article. Had Jordan Neely and the others been born a generation or two earlier, they probably would not have wound up on the streets. There was an alternative back then, a state states. Sorry, there was an alternative back then, state psychiatric hospitals, properly known as asylums, massive architecturally imposing and set on bucolic acreage, they housed close to 600,000 patients by the 1950s, totaling half the nation's hospital population. Today, that number is 45,000 and falling. Asylums were created for humane ends. The very term implies refuge for those in in distress. The idea was to separate the insane who were innocently afflicted from the criminals and prostitutes who were then commonly referred to as the unworthy poor. Asylums were popular because they provided treatment in isolated settings far from temptation while relieving families of their most burdensome members. But, quote, insanity, end quote, in these years cast a very wide net. A typical asylum included patients who were suffering from alcoholism, dementia, depression, and epilepsy, of all things, as well as such now defunct diagnoses as, quote, lunacy and melancholia. The usual uh, stay was marked in years, not months, as evidenced by the rows of crosses in asylum graveyards. Over time, the number of institutionalized patients far outpaced the state's willingness to support them. Funding and oversight disappeared, and this in turn produced a flood of exposés, some embellished, others sadly true, portraying these institutions as torture chambers where ice pick lobotomies, electric shock, sterilization, and solitary confinement turned humans into zombies. A seemingly revolutionary solution soon appeared, a new drug with the potential to treat psychotic disorders such as schizophrenia and other bipolar disorders. First marketed in 1959, I'm sorry, 1955, under the brand name Thorazine, it became the psychiatric equivalent of antibiotics and the polio vaccine. (coughs) Why keep patients locked away in sadistic institutions when they could be successfully medicated close to home? The promise of Thorazine coincided with a dramatic assault upon traditional psychiatry led by radical critics such as Michael Foucault and Thomas Saz. Asylums existed to enslave those who ignored society's norms, they believed. Who could say with assurance that the people locked away in these places were any more or less insane than the authorities who put them there? It seemed a perfect fit for the 1960s, appealing to emerging rights groups as a counterculture counterculture of scorn Jesus, a counterculture scornful of elites. Quote, if you talk to God, you are praying, Saz declared. If God talks to you, you are schizophrenic, end quote. In October 1963, President John F. Kennedy put his signature to the last bill he would ever sign, the Community Mental Health Act. It aimed to demolish walled-off the walled-off world of asylum in favor of 1,500 local clinics, 
where patients could receive the drugs and therapies they needed. Kennedy had a personal stake in the legislation. His sister, Rosemary, had undergone an experimental lobotomy that left her severely disabled. On paper, at least, uh, deinstitutionalization seemed both more humane and more likely to succeed. Then reality set in. Closing the asylums was the easy part. Getting people to accept a mental health clinic next to their local church or elementary school proved a much tougher sell. Uh, asylum inmates returned home to find their former neighbors unprepared and often unwilling to help. Most of the clinics never actually materialized, and the promise of Thorazine was blunted in part by its nasty side effects. Surveys of those released from state asylums found that close to 30% were either homeless or had, quote, no known address within six months of their discharge. One clinic likened it to a psychiatric Titanic. A uh, few voices had predicted this. Uh, sorry, a few voices had predicted as much. In 1973, a Wisconsin psychiatrist named Daryl Treffert wrote an essay about the dangerous direction in which his profession was heading. His colleagues had become so fixated on guarding the patient's civil liberties he noted that they had lost sight of the patient's illness. What worried him was the full-throated endorsement of recent laws and court decisions that severely restricted involuntary commitments. What purpose was served by giving people who couldn't take care of themselves the freedom to live as they wished? He uh, titled his piece, quote, Dying with Their Rights On. Treffert was uh, referring to cases like Lessard versus Schmidt in 1972, where a federal court ruled that involuntary commitment must be limited to cases involving the, quote, extreme likelihood that someone, quote, will do immediate harm to himself or others, end quote, a very strict standard. Three years later, the Supreme Court tightened things further by asserting that authorities had been too cavalier in locking away the, quote, harmlessly mental ill. In O'Connor versus Donaldson, it declared, quote, mere public intolerance or animosity cannot constitutionally justify the deprivation of a person's physical liberty, end quote. Enter Joyce Brown, a 40-year-old woman who went by the street name Billy Boggs in the year uh, 1987. Uh, Brown was living atop a heating vent on New York's Tony Upper East Side. It was a tense time for the nation's largest cities with exploding crime, uh, rampant crack addicts, the AIDS crisis, and thousands of homeless people camping in parks, bus stations, subway tunnels, and doorways. Under extreme pressure, New York's Mayor Ed Koch uh, authorized the involuntary commitment of those living unsheltered on the streets. Brown was the first to be confined. Little was known about her beyond her struggles with heroin and a diagnosis of schizophrenia, following her eviction from a New Jersey shelter. Brown was more of a nuisance than a threat to the neighborhood, stopping traffic, screaming at pedestrians, using the sidewalk as her toilet. Social workers who periodically visited her worried that she ate poorly, never bathed, and lacked the clothing to handle New York's brutal winter. Some viewed her as self-negligent to the point of being suicidal. Taken to Bellevue Hospital, Brown was bathed, deloused, and given antipsychotic drugs. 
Four psychiatrists confirmed the diagnosis of chronic schizophrenia. Bellevue contained a courtroom where patients could challenge their confinement before a state-appointed judge. Most were represented by a public defender, but the American Civil Liberties Union took on Brown's case, claiming that her confinement violated federal court guidelines. Ironically, Brown turned out uh, to be her own best witness. Carefully medicated, she testified thoughtfully enough to convince the judge that the evidence before him was too ambiguous to merit the loss of her liberty. But he surely was conflicted, writing, quote, There must be some civilized alternatives other than involuntary hospitalization or the street. Unfortunately, there wasn't. An appeals court uh, reversed the decision to free Brown, uh, leading her to refuse all medication. Uh, another trial was held to determine whether antipsychotic drugs could be forced upon her, and this time she prevailed. The city, wary of lawsuits, chose to discharge her rather than to appeal. Brown became an instant celebrity. She traveled the talk show circuit as the most famous homeless person in America, and even gave a lecture of sorts at Harvard Law, uh, the Harvard Law School. Quote, I like the streets, and I am entitled to live the way I want to live, she explained. Offered a room at a, quote, residential hotel, she quickly returned to the life that she knew best, panhandling for drug money at the Port Authority bus terminal, terminal before fading from public view. She died in 2005 at age 58. The questions uh, her case raised, however, are more relevant than ever. How does a civilized society deal with severely mentally ill people who refuse assistance? What constitutes the sort of behavior that requires forced hospitalization? Is it time to bring back the asylum? These issues are intertwined with a fundamental change brought about by deinstitutionalization. Put simply, civil libertarians and disability rights advocates have largely replaced psychiatrists as the arbiters of care for the severe, severely mentally ill. And a fair number of them, with the best of intentions, seem to view the choices of those they represent as an alternative lifestyle rather than an expression of a sickness requiring aggressive medical care. The enormous vacuum created by deinstitutionalization has been a calamity for both the mentally ill and society at large. The role once occupied by the asylum has been transferred to the institutions perhaps least able to deal with mental health issues, prisons and jails. The number of inmates in the U.S. in 1955 was 185,000. Today, that figure is 1.9 million. Unsurprisingly, the nation's three largest mental health facilities are the Los Angeles County Jail, the Cook County Jail in Chicago, and Rikers Island in New York City. Approximately one quarter of their inmates have been diagnosed with serious medical disorder. In this massive system, the mentally ill are less likely to make bail, more likely to be repeat offenders, and far more likely to be victimized by other inmates. Given the sheer numbers, maintaining order in these prisons and jails depends heavily on antipsychotic medication. 
It's hard to imagine a worse environment for the safety, much less the treatment of the mentally ill. Meanwhile, state mental hospitals continue to shrink. Gone is the laundry list of afflictions that marketed uh, that marked asylum life in the 1950s. The majority of the current patients are there involuntarily. People who have been judged to be a danger to themselves or to others who have been found not guilty of a crime by reason of insanity or who are being evaluated for their competency to stand trial. Because so many psychiatric beds have disappeared, the waiting period for admission can take months, which means the inmates languish in jail without having been convicted of a crime. In past decades, a growing number of scholars from across the ideological spectrum have suggested a return to asylums. Asylums. Uh, among them is Ezekiel Emanuel, uh, a leading medical ethicist who joined with two colleagues in 2015 to recommend the building of, quote, safe, modern, and humane state institutions to end the revolving door of homelessness, hospitalization, prison that passes for policy today. The model they suggested is the Worcester Recovery Center in Massachusetts, a facility for 320 long-term patients with private rooms and a, quote, recovery-inspired residential design. Opened in 2012 on the grounds of a long-abandoned state asylum, it cost $300 million to complete, making it one of the most expensive non-road construction projects in the, state, in the state's history. There is little doubt of the need for it, and the early signs, including surveys of recovery outfit outcomes, are encouraging. Since the goal is to serve patients rather than to warehouse them, the price can be steep. In 2015, Massachusetts spent $55,000 per prison inmate, with some additional cost for those with serious mental uh, health issues. Meanwhile, the Worcester Recovery Center, with an annual budget of $60 million, spent close to four times that sum per patient. How this will play out in the long run and how many other states will follow remains to be seen. The very word asylum brings shivers to those old enough to remember its abuses. It has a disturbing cultural legacy to confront uh, in the, st uh, the sadistic uh, nurse ratchet of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Uh, bringing it back in any form will face the twin obstacles of cost and image. But for the most vulnerable among us who exist in a world of peril to themselves and to others, it is a far better option than the alternative of homelessness and incarceration. That's the end of the article. Uh, I used to be under the impression that Ronald Reagan was to blame for the deinstitutionalization. I didn't know until I read this article. Um, well, actually, I think I read it in the uh, Schellenberger book. But um, who knew that it was uh, Kennedy that uh, essentially kind of signed into law what would be the beginning of the whole deinstitutionalization, um, dominoes falling. Um, so anyway, I just thought that that article was very interesting. Um, clearly the, uh, spending, uh, $200,000 a year on each, uh, mental health, uh, inhabitant of these new clinics, like the one in Massachusetts is not a tenable solution, but we need some kind of a solution. And the 
again, the idea of giving humans the ability to just have unfettered access to all the drugs they can take and, and essentially subsidizing that um, is not showing mercy to these humans. That's it for today. I'll talk to you later. Nothing in this podcast is meant to be financial, legal, or tax advice. Though there's some kick-ass information here, it's for informational purposes only. Take control of your retirement planning, but get professional counsel if you need tax, legal, or financial advice. For more content like this, join my mailing list at rogueretirementlounge.com. And if you have questions about retirement investing, entrepreneurship, business, or anything else, my email address is matt at rogueretirementlounge.com. 